1: Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3 of our daily three-hour tour this Tuesday, March eighth, 2022. It's a delight to welcome back, uh, I think, really one of the most important authors and columnists on the scene today, political and social commentators. Uh, you uh, ignore her work, I think, at misunderstanding the culture's peril. Her name is Bacha Unger-Sargon. Her most recent book, Bad News, How Woke Media is undermining democracy. She's also the uh, deputy editor of the opinion pages at, the, at uh, Newsweek, newsweek.com. And I wanted her on for something she wrote uh, just a little over a week ago. For those of you that may recall, something that took place in Canada, the the trucking uh, protest in Canada, wrote about it, probably the most uh, definitively important piece on everything that was written and said about it. So with that introduction, <laughs> welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you so much, and what an introduction. Wow, thank you for those kind words, Seth. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's well-deserved and well-earned, at least by my lights. I, I really enjoy reading you and uh, appreciate uh, the work you're doing, especially the way you come at these issues, which is not through the typical lens that most conservatives come at these issues, and maybe that's what helps, um, helps uh, give you such a unique perspective. Let me tell you what... Um, what, what lit me up on your piece about the Canadian truckers, and we can work it backwards or forwards any way, way you want, if that's okay. It was a piece you had over on at Spike, uh, published at Spiked. And you went through what a lot of us knew about what was going on with the Canadian truckers. And then you came to this, and um, I agree with it. I just never saw it or said it this way. I'm going to quote your words to you. The left is now on the side of power. Liberal media are on the side of the government and they take political dissent personally. And what leftist elites are doing with their power is setting a new standard for who deserves basic civil liberties. You go on from there and we can break it up and down a little bit, Bacha But I think conservatives misunderstand the world to the degree that they misunderstand the fact that the left is now the power. Ideology in at least, if not the West, at least America. The left is in charge here, and we better get used to understanding that if we want to deal with it. Take it from there.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's impossible to turn on your TV or Netflix and not see that, like, it's completely left wing values that are guiding things. So I'm on the left, so often I won't even notice it, but you'll notice it as a conservative. You know, you can immediately spot, like, The Trump voter, you know, like in the TV show or whatever, not just by how they're dressed, but by their views. And it's meant to signal instantly to the liberal, you know, audience, you know, who the bad guy is here. Right. It's not just in our entertainment. It's in, um, you know, a lot of our cultural institutions. It's in our media. It's in academia, of course. So, you know, basically what the way I see it is the left won the culture wars on a lot of different fronts on some of them. They created a new consensus on the right. Like I would say, for example, LGBTQ rights, you know, um, you know, gay marriage Was you should just see the polling on that, the shift on the right from being totally against it to there being, you know, huge amounts of consensus for it. Um, So so in some ways there there was a shift on the right. But in other ways, um, they sort of, you know, a a very, very overeducated liberal elite sort of took over a lot of these institutions and are trying to basically rule from those that position of cultural power by enforcing their views on um, Americans who don't agree with them. And, you know, you see this gap widening up in so many areas. One of them is, for example, so if, if on the LGBTQ marriage front there's been seismic shift on the right, on the trans, um, let's say trans athletes, right, trans women competing in women's sports, only a tiny, tiny liberal elite, you know, Believe that trans women should be able to compete in women's sports, and yet they're trying to enforce that on the 90% of Americans who disagree, which includes, you know, 40% of the 50-60% of their own side. Um, so I think that that you're totally right that you know this the cultural waters we're swimming in have been you know taken over by not just the left, but an overeducated, very affluent left that's very eager to enforce the views that you know and the values that they picked up in their fancy universities on the rest of us.
1: Even in that answer, you've given me a million questions, (laughs) Bosh. Nicely put. Well put. So, yeah, I mean, but if you do the survey of the institutions that we live with, it's hard to think of anything. I mean, I think talk radio probably might be the only institution that isn't dominated by the left when you think about it. And it's not just media and news, right? It's not just entertainment, but it's entertainment. It's our education system. For goodness sakes, it's the um, it's it's professional athletics. Uh, something that I don't know if you remember Michael Barone's thesis of hard America versus soft America came out around two thousand two. Soft America, he said. You know, was your schools, your feel good kind of stuff, your self esteem institutions. Hard America was people who trained by, you know, with live fire. Your military, if you think of it that way. But even the military, I think, at least at the at the leadership level, at the general class, even that looks more and more. Like a sociology department at Harvard, than what we think of of the military, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, you know, if you see some of the stuff yeah. that's coming out of them, so it is. It's it's um, I think important to recognize there's there there are very few, if any, institutions that are not run by the left these days. But let me take you to what you just said about the tiny elite on transgender, and we'll circle back to the truckers, etc. But I didn't realize it was a tiny elite within the liberal or left establishment. That supports transgenderism in the public sphere, or at least in in, in some kind of equitable Fourteenth Amendment type sphere, let us say. But if it is true, and I'll accept that it is, it says something about what the power of what cowing people into agreement, forced confessions, or forced silence. Uh, right? There's there's this inability for too many people to want to be what they think of as on the wrong side of where the cultural elite is or on the wrong side of history. So they're kind of cowed into silence. Thus, what, masking how infinitesimally small their movement really is. A- am I, am I on to something there or am I not?
2: Well, I would say, um, like, where are you judging that silence by? Like, when I go to the you know the local bar, you know, um, there's liberals there, there's conservatives there, and I, you know, I think that they would probably, by and large, agree with each other on this, on this issue, on okay. you know, trans women in sports, okay. right? Okay. Um, it's just that the the elite have taken, like we said, they've taken over the institutions where knowledge is produced and where meaning is made. So, journalism, academia, and so forth. So, you know, the New York Times editorial board, the New York Times uh, opinion section is not going to give a platform to anybody from outside their, you know, little progressive elite who agrees with them. But that doesn't mean that those people don't exist or that in their spaces where they feel comfortable, where they rule, that they're not talking about this stuff amongst themselves. Um, that, that's kind of what I would say. Yeah.
1: Yes. And but isn't that kind of how change happens in some respects? I, you know, I tell people maybe you've heard me say it on our conversations before. I'm less worried about the committed ideological leftist than I am the apolitical, let's say, mom or soccer mom who you know reads about this stuff occasionally in the New York Times or the Arizona Republic or hears about it on CNN. The kid comes home with a new curricula, uh, a transgender curricula or a more equitable curricula that involves critical race theory. And the mom says, oh, yeah, I know I read about that. I heard about it. It's a good idea without knowing what you and I know about this stuff. That's who I worry about. So I worry about that cultural elite if it's not respond, if it's not met with, um, met with, you know, a counter position or count, a counter argument.
2: Um, I guess um, I'm maybe more of a populist than you. I really believe in the wisdom of the crowd Good. and in the common sense. Good. You know, like in 1984, he has this um, this great line about how um, you know uh, the the heresy of heresies is common sense, right? And yep. I, I think that there's something really to that so i think change happens you know change like dr king change like you know marriage equality like that stuff happened because the moral arc of the universe was bending towards justice i don't think that the kind of woke ideology that is not just that is anti-just that is discriminatory that is bigoted i don't think that that's going to you know that now that elite is going to be able to lead people in that direction. And I I don't think that the change that happened, you know, Dr. King's change was not led by the elites. you know, of course, the elites were involved in it, but I think that there was a lot, you know, a groundswell of public support for that from the people who came to understand, you know, the error of their ways. Um, So I I, I guess I have a little bit more trust. And I I think it's so funny, like, you know, the irony, if you told me five years ago that the forefront of like revolutionary power was going to be, you know truck drivers or soccer moms you know parents saying actually like it's our job to teach our children you know about sex and and what sex they are and so forth at least you know until they're in you know high school i I think if you told me that that was going to have this kind of like revolutionary side oh yeah no you're right about (laughs) let me take a quick commercial
1: break and pick up with this on you but let me point the question back to you maybe over the break you can think about an answer on the way back do you think using that george orwell construction do you think common sense is still in the mainstream here Sounds like maybe you do. But let's talk about that when we come back. I'm Seth Leibson. She's Bacha Unger-Sargon from Newsweek and, of course, her book. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Bacha Unger-Sargon, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Deputy Editor of the Opinion Pages at Newsweek is our guest. Bacha, talking about—you you were talking to me about in the previous segment the populism, the wisdom of crowds, and uh, common sense, the heresy of heresies, as Orwell calls it, you mentioned, in 1984. Do you think common sense is still in the mainstream? you think we are a country or a society that still abides mostly by common sense?
2: I think we're, um, we're sort of in a moral panic right now. Okay. Um, first, we were in a moral panic about race. Then yeah. we were in a moral panic about COVID. Now we're in a moral panic about Ukraine. Um, and I think that from that point of view, it certainly feels like we're not. It feels like, you know, somehow, like, the craziness is is um, on the rise and, and on the, you know, the rule. Um, but I think that, like, that it seems that way to people like us who are in the media. Mm-hmm. And I think most Americans just don't exist there. Most Americans exist kind of... You know, um, in their smaller local communities, um, the the, the sort of the constant paying attention to the news is is becoming increasingly an elite phenomenon. Um, So I I think that from that point of view, like in our day to day, like clearly, like if you look at COVID, like despite the attempt by the elites to enforce this COVID zero um, worldview and, you know, um, way of life and restrictionist policies, it's just so clear that America is no longer there, and it was really like again the wisdom of the crowds and yeah. common sense that 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 prevailed there. So that gave me a lot of hope to see that. Yeah, for sure.
1: You're right about that. It it it, it did it does seem to have come around. Um, it took a while, and there was a lot of cost to it, but yeah. it does seem to have come around. Well, you said the moral panic of race. Let's talk about that for just half a moment too, if we can. That came up. Uh, clearly, I mean, strongly in 2020, right? It had been there a little bit before. It had been um, more than bubbling up. It was a low boil, probably. Did we need a moral panic about race in this country? Did this country deserve it, need it, require it? Were we on our way to getting it right before the panic came, in other words?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that America is a white supremacy. I think that that's moral panic language. I think America does still struggle to, you know, ensure equal rights to one specific community, Americans descended from slaves. Mm-hmm. I think there's still there's still much more police brutality against them. Um, you know, there's uh, mass incarceration in, past them, you know, much more, um, something that the right is increasingly paying much more attention to. I think that the educational system, especially in the north and in the northeast, is very, very deeply segregated. And then there's uh, intergenerational poverty among descendants, 20 to 30 percent of descendants of slaves. I think we are still failing the black community. This a very specific subsection of the black community. Um, but are we failing Asian Americans? Are we failing Jewish Americans? Are we white supremacists against Jews, against um, immigrants from Nigeria? No. Like those people, those groups are all flourishing in this country, in this great nation. But to call it a white supremacy is wrong. We don't have a problem with whiteness. We have a problem specifically with how we treat, you know, a subsection of the black community. That's how I see it. So to me... The, the attempt to say, you know, America's a white supremacy just lets you off the hook for the actual problems, right? It, it generalizes the problems to such a degree to where you're combating Islamophobia and anti-LGBTQ segment that is vanishing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, As opposed mm-hmm. to fighting for equal rights for the one community that we keep failing over and over. You know, so for example, you know, we it's now considered on the left, it's considered racist to believe that there's a difference between a citizen and a non-citizen. They believe there should be, you know, open borders and anybody who wants to pursue the American dream should be allowed to. Mm-hmm. Never mind that black Americans are still struggling to have their share of the pie and that, you know, the working class in America has lost the ability to achieve the American dream. So I think that that mission creep of racism, that's moral panic. The okay. idea that, you know, we don't need police reform, but we need defunding the police. That's moral panic. The idea that our institutions are so deeply compromised that they can't be reformed. You know, I mean, that, that, that's all moral panic to me. Even when it comes to black Americans, of course, you cannot compare today to the 60s. To the 70s, even to things that people faced in the 80s, you know. Um, uh, so, so this re- this attempt to reintroduce race to American life, like I think that's really, really toxic and, and bad and, um, and, and and But even worse, I think it forecloses on an actually um, more just future for the Americans that we keep failing.
1: You said something interesting about this. Uh, say say what you said again, if you don't mind, Bacha, About the Northeast, it exists. The racism of the, uh, what, what, how did you put it? The northeastern communities have a have a level of racism or something. You you had mentioned the Northeast.
2: Um, so so New York's public schools are more segregated than Alabama's, and I think right. that that is right. yeah. When you go into the South, like it's just the things they tell you to expect to see. Like it's like it's kind of there's a lot of projection basically. Like liberals like to project their own failings onto their political opponents so instead of looking around themselves and being like wow everybody who lives in this neighborhood is white because it's the most expensive neighborhood in new york city and it's where all the journalists live and all the academics live." you're so right about i I think you you are so right
1: about this i've lived in uh one two three four different states in my life Mm -hmm. two of them literally in the south the most racist state i lived in was massachusetts and the city was boston kind of interesting most people would not understand that take i take it you would
2: yeah, definitely. So, what was that? What it
1: had in that manifest? Well, I, you could sense it. You could just tell that. First of all, if you weren't from there, you were always an outsider. Second Uh of all, uh it was very clear that there was a difference between the white community and the black community, the language Mm -hmm. that was used about the minority communities. And you're right. It gets you to that projection. If you think about New York and Boston, they drive academically, certainly. Right. And in some respects uh, through the media, but more academically, they drive this. Those are the cities, the elites in those cities drive this notion of systemic racism. Uh, Ibram Kendi, he's at Boston U, isn't he, I think? But in any event, yeah, that's where I, I think there is an awful lot of projection that comes out of these societies or at least out of these parts of America that totally misunderstand the target and misunderstand the problem. Because you're right. Uh, Tennessee is not what they think it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's very few bars in New York City that you can walk into and you'll see black people and white people like sitting side Correct. by side, but that's very regular and routine stuff. I'm not saying the south doesn't still have its struggles. No, 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 right. It does. Right. But it's full of churches where black and white people are praying side by side, and that's, you know, because New York City is a deeply segregated city by by income, which means also by race. Do you worry about the resegregation
1: of, you know, of society here, Bacha? Yeah,
2: but, yeah, yeah, very much, very much, yeah.
1: It it's it because it does seem like um we spent a good generation and a half, maybe two generations, really, in this country trying to get to the ethic yeah. of integration. Martin, that, That's kind of what I thought was kind of the magic of Martin Luther King Jr., is he found something we could all unite around, our common heritage. You know, the way he spoke about our founding and how he wanted us to live up to it, not rewrite it and not condemn it, but live up to it, seemed to be something we could all unite around, which was one of the beautiful things I think that he did. It's interesting— If I can take on your side of the aisle and you can smack me down if you want. But I think I think it really was a project of the left that has kind of isolated him, his message, integration and actually that which he spoke for. The uniting of our country and the overcoming of racism and segregation through the common uh, common understanding and and really celebration of our founding. Can I do one more quick break and you respond to that on the other side? Is that okay? Sure thing. Thank yeah. you much. Bacha Ungar sargon is our guest. She is the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and she is the deputy editor of the Opinion Page at Newsweek magazine. We will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show brought to you from the Guns Etc. Studios. Bacha Ungar-Sargon is our guest. She is the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. She is the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek magazine. You can follow her on Twitter at B. Ungar-Sargon. Bacha, I was just making a point with you about the race issue, uh, America's founding in the left – Segregation really – one of the saddest things I have watched over the last – I don't know, my adult uh, my adult period of, of consciousness is this notion that desegregation isn't necessarily a positive good and segregation or resegregation of our races seems to be coming more and more a positive good. It seems to me a terrible thing for this country and it seems to me right where the racial divide is right now is whether you believe – in the, um, the notion that we, you know, we, we should all share equally and equal means equal, uh, which is what the Supreme Court said when it was handling these things in the 50s and 60s, or that, you know, we need to understand people for their race. It's just so very backwards to me, and it seems to me a reversal of what we fought for for 60, 70 years. It seems to me. I don't know. Your thought.
2: No, I totally agree with you. I mean, Dr. King is my hero, and I every day I try to you know, I I feel like I'm answerable to God and I'm answerable to Dr. King and uh-huh. you know, both of them are, are, you know, things I think about all the time. Am I am I, you know, being a good Jew and am I being a good follower of Doctor King? Yeah. And um I, I I think that it's um um it's shocking to see the reversal of his vision to where, you know, he's you know, his dream was for us to live in a colorblind society and that now is considered to be racist by, you know, leftist elites and of course, you know, my book is about how this is all really about class. It's right. not about race at all. Right. Um, you right. know, there's sort of a, a growing class divide in America. And um, because the liberal leftist elites, whose job it is to tell us, you know, to analyze the world, because they are very much benefiting from that class divide, um, they have sort of shifted the focus from class to race when America um, has never been less racist,
1: yeah.
2: despite what you know, we, obviously we still have our struggles, but we've never been less racist, and yet they have never been more excitable and obsessed with the concept of race than they are right now, and I think it's just one big alibi, it's just a big distraction exercise from the true inequality that they actually are benefiting from.
1: Well, Todd, ta- yeah, that, so le- that takes us back to where we began, which is the divide you see based on class. You saw this uh, in sharp relief with the response and reaction to the trucker protest in, in Canada. I'll say something about that. In your column and Spike, you did a great job of talking about it. But I suppose one of the ironies of our time, ironies of history, to cite Reinhold Niebuhr, is that, um, is that you would have thought A protest movement in the spirit of King, in the spirit of Thoreau, in the spirit of Gandhi would have garnered and had the support of liberalism and leftism, particularly a working class. Right. I mean, there was there's it's hard to imagine a more working class genre or or species than 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 truckers. Right. But no, no. And is that because the left is now in charge and the dissent? Then perforce is going to be seen as conservative. Is that why that happens, or how would you put it?
2: So okay, so I'm not sure I would quite say that. The, I mean, I was very solidly on the trucker's side, although yeah. I wouldn't quite say that they were that it, it rose to the level of like Dr. King's work. Oh, uh, fair was, enough. Like, fair really, enough. I, I overstated yeah, yeah. that. You're, I take the correction.
1: I take that correction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: just, yeah, have yeah. To, just have to say that. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I was like so from day one. You know, the first response in the liberal media to the to the truckers' protest was. A cartoon in the in the Washington Post um, calling them fascist and so I thought it was so ironic that the liberal media started by calling them fascist and then ended up by cheering on actual fascist measures by the Trudeau government to squash this protest right exactly like you said this was a labor protest this was um, a, a group of working-class Canadians insisting on their right to work mm-hmm. and their right to work on their own terms it was a labor strike Um, because of the Canadian government's COVID overreach. And to, but to leftists like that, they just coded that as racism. I mean, they were looking for any evidence they could. Um, they found one Confederate flag at a protest of 100,000 people. And then they found swastikas. One of them was just a swastika. It's true, but most of the swastikas were basically people making that odious comparison between, COVID overreach and the Holocaust, which I'm on record saying over and over, I find that comparison odious. But of the people making that comparison are not Nazis. That's They're right. talking about how evil the Nazis are, right? right? And then That's Trudeau right. is just as evil as the Nazis are right? Right. but instead Trudeau himself over and over called them Nazis and racist. Um and that 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 is exactly it. Like the left that used to be on the side of the working class, when the working class rises up in a populist, you know, attempt to stand up for itself, they call them racist. Like they literally see racism you know, instead of class. That's, that's essentially what happened
1: there. Well, Bacha, you've been great with your time, with your pen, with your brain. You'll stay close. I love catching up with you, and I really appreciate you, you joining so us much. as always. Thank
2: you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Talk uh, to you soon. The
1: pleasure is ours. Thank you. Bacha Unger-Sargon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth and Show, parts of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature, whole food and nutrition, pure, potent plant power, 100% natural. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every day. Have been doing so for three years. Haven't gotten sick with it. I can't uh, guarantee that, obviously, as a, as a uh, FDA-approved statement. I'm just telling you my experience and the experience of my friends who have taken it as well. I mean, all you get are fruits and vegetables and heavy doses of them in their vegetarian capsules. Nothing else is added, and it's third-party tested for any kinds of impurities, metals, you name it. It's just all natural. That's it. No added sugar. No added nothing. Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com for the best value on their fruits and veggies. Use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, fruits and veggies, discount code BALANCE. Let me pick up on something Bot just said first of all i I'm, <laughs> i didn't want to mention this to her because it was a thought i had after she spoke anyway but i don't know how much longer she's going to say she is a member of the left i don't know exactly what constitutes her leftism it's certainly not cultural and it's certainly not you know she says she looks at things through the lens of class rather than race and I suppose that's, in some respects, the difference between traditional Marxism and what you might call neo-Marxism. In a sense, uh, neo-Marxism is what embraced uh, the racial element to it, which was a little bit of concern, but less so than um, than Marx made it. Uh, you work and toil and earn bread, and all eat it. That was the concern abraham lincoln had he said there are two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will continue to struggle the one is the common right of humanity and the other is the divine right of kings it is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself it's the same spirit that says he quoting lincoln you work in toil and earn bread and i'll eat it no matter in what shape it comes whether from the Mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race. It is the same tyrannical principle. So I am glad she is looking at this as a class issue, particularly when it comes to what the truckers in Canada and what I guess the truckers also on the northeast are protesting, which is the regulations, rules and policies over COVID, which truly were accelerated against the classes. It was very easy, very easy for people with fancy titles to wield those titles, to wield those titles and proclaim rules they themselves did not live by, but forced others to live by. How many photos did we have to see? of fancy galas and fundraisers or just even political leaders dining out at restaurants maskless while those who were serving them, half of whom seemed to be PO's people of color, or minor, racial minorities, but all of them having to live under the, shall we say, COVID protocols of masking. Um, how often did we see that? You had the servants who had to do the masking, you had the overlords and the uh, and the uh, and the uh, gentry class uh, uh, that didn 't have to live by them, and note note who made the rules, note who made the rules you know of foreign by the people, not hardly, not really. those who made the rules were the most elite of the elite were they not? They were people you had never heard of or ever voted into office for the most part. I mean, I suppose if you had followed epidemiology or maybe the AIDS crisis in the uh, 80s, you would have known who Anthony Fauci is. But I didn't. Uh, I mean, I followed it in the 80s and I still didn't remember Anthony Fauci. I didn't know who Anthony Fauci was until uh, probably January of 2020, Bill. Did you know who Anthony? Fauci? Right. S- same. Right. So we became this this concern that a lot of us have had about, you know, progressive leadership in this country was leadership by an unelected elite class and you know there is no better um, representation of that than the epidemiologists at the CDC or, or other, other, other other physicians and experts quote unquote experts um, that uh, were never elected uh, but made rules for us. And this is obviously if or those of you who listen to the show regularly, where I would invoke C. S. Lewis yet again in his screw tape letters. It's actually in the introduction of his screw tape letters where he writes, The greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crimes that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered. Moved, seconded, carried and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed and well lit offices by quiet men with collars and cut fingernails and smooth shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. It's a good point when you think about it. Joe Biden, well, he more often lowers his voice, but he can he can you've seen him on the campaign trail. He can he can let out a a whale in a belt. You've seen uh, the same from Kamala Harris. You've seen the same from, you know, Republicans, Donald Trump. I mean, they know how to raise their voice. You've never seen Rochelle Walensky or Anthony Fauci or Redfield or any of these people, any of these non-elected leaders, these non-political leaders raising their voice for emphasis. You know why? They don't need to. They don't need to. By dint of their very existence, job and certifications and expertise and credentials and the bowing down to them that we have conceded so much of our power of for and by the people, that power, we have given it to them. This is the rule by the elites. And by elites, it's immediately going to be a class thing. So, you know, maybe the Democratic Party needs to stop lecturing us about their care for the common man, the middle class and the lower class. It's the last thing they care about anymore. The last. And maybe the first thing the conservative movement cares about and Bacha unger Sargon. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show brought to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Really appreciate it. I started the show, I'll end where I started in my monologue, talking about, um, you know, the effort – to erase so much of our history, the effort to erase so much of our leadership, which ha- uh, leaders of great leaders of our history is a better way to put it, which is the effort really to instantiate not just progressivism but relativism. This was the point of my monologue and that was the exact opposing point of our founding which was based on right and wrong, truth and falsehood good and bad, natural rights. And that's why I kind of finally understood why the left in this country was going after Abraham Lincoln as much as they were going after Robert E. Lee. There was no one who stood for natural rights in the interpretation of our Declaration of Independence more than Abraham Lincoln. So let's close with a little Lincoln, shall we? Wise statesmen as they were, they established these great self-evident truths that when in the distant future some man... Some faction, some interest should set up the doctrine that none but rich men or none but white men were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Their posterity should look up again at that old Declaration of Independence and take courage to renew the battle which their fathers began. Courage. Interesting use of that word, courage. To Aristotle, it was the first virtue because without it, nothing else was possible. Without courage, nothing gets accomplished. Courage, natural right, and Lincoln. I believe that is the medicine that will bind our wounds. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebsen, Class dismissed.